my playback. And now, live, real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's MLK Day 2024. And I got a few thoughts on that a little bit later on, but glad to be with you on this Monday. And if you're in part of the United States that's in the deep freeze right now, you certainly have my sympathies. It's been darn cold in my neck of the woods as well. Glad to have your phone calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And speaking of the weather, yeah, the Iowa caucuses are tonight. We'll be probably talking about them to considerable length tomorrow night. But I want to find out how they go. However, I'm reasonably sure that Donald Trump is going to have a stellar night in the Iowa caucuses tonight. The polls put him up as much as 70 points with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the rhino Republican. Maybe she can run in 28 as a Democrat. Uh, She and Ron DeSantis will be splitting up the remaining 30 points. And Donald Trump, I think, is going to come out a major winner. Although there are some people who say, well, maybe he'll only get 60 percent. Can you believe we live in an era where there's a presidential candidate who is so very popular that he can actually expect to get 60% or greater of the vote in the very first presidential contest of the election year 2024? But glad to get your calls. 866-439-5277. You can remember that as 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the list, uh, head of the line, and we'll put you right on because I love naysayers. If you'd rather send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll or X poll, as we call it now, the poll on X. And this question has to do with something that went public over this last weekend. And it has to do with foreign nationals owning land in the United States, which is supposed to be reported and recorded by the government. But it turns out that there is a prominent member of the Chinese Communist Party. He uh, makes his home much of the time, apparently, in the United States, but he's chosen to stay a Chinese citizen. Fine, that's his choice. But he is the second largest foreign landowner in America. He's a billionaire. His name is Chen Tian Kuo, uh, I believe is the way you pronounce it, the founder, chairman, and CEO of a global investment firm known as the Shanda Group. He owns places in Manhattan and Los Angeles, and he owns 200,000 acres of land in the state of Oregon. So the question, the way I framed it, because this is coming up more and more often, should we forbid land purchases by citizens of foreign countries that will not let Americans buy land themselves there. I mean, it's a little more complicated than just saying, should we forbid all foreign nationals from owning land in America? And you could make it that simple. But I think this one's even easier. Because in the case of China, China will not let Americans or any other foreign nationals own land in China. And yet Chinese nationals come to the United States and buy land and buy businesses here. I think at the very least we could limit it to just those people who come from countries that allow Americans to own land there. 
And if your country says, no, we'd rather not have foreigners owning land in our country, fine. Then you don't need to own land in the United States either. But this Chen Tian Kuo owns 200,000 acres. And here's where it gets even more interesting. He apparently bought this land about a decade ago. And it's supposed to be recorded as a foreign national ownership of land in America. I'll credit the Daily Caller News Foundation and the Daily Mail out of Great Britain for breaking this story over the weekend. But when you look through these land reports and you find out, here's a foreign national who owns 200,000 acres in a single state in America. And he's got other properties that he owns as well in Los Angeles and in Manhattan. He's got properties there as well. He is also a man with extensive ties to the Chinese government, according to Daily Caller Foundation, and CCP membership and executive roles in Chinese Communist Party-affiliated organizations. Well, in that case, those ties to a country that does not have America's best interests at heart, I think they should be closely examined and perhaps even prohibited. And I've had people say, well, why do we have these foreigners owning land at all? Because nobody's seen fit to pass a law to say you can't own that land. And if you did that, would you require foreign nationals to, say, divest themselves of any land land ownership they have in the United States? You could actually do that or simply prohibit it going forward and say that the next time that land changes hands, it has to be sold by somebody who is a legal citizen of the United States. Although these days, the Democrats are never going to sign off on that. So the question is, should we forbid land purchases by citizens of countries that will not let Americans buy land like China does? Today's Poll on X is brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long, long time ago. You can join too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, in Friday's poll on First Amendment Friday, should border states take control by blocking Joe Biden's border agents? My answer to that was yes. Texas is doing just that. The Texas National Guard has been safeguarding the border of Texas because Joe Biden's border patrol, I mean, those border agents, I have a lot of sympathy for them because they work for a federal agency and the guy in charge of their agency is Joe Biden. And he has turned them into concierge agents for the foreign, you know, for the illegal aliens who are coming across our border. They've been forced to try to aid, abet, and enable people to enter America illegally. Uh, but it's not, not because they chose to do it. It's because Joe Biden has taken an open borders position. Well, should, should individual states take control of their own borders as Texas has done? 96% of you said yes to that question. Only 4% of you said no. And I want to give you a little update. Uh, about what's going on in Georgia. Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, the one who decided to launch this attack on Donald Trump by bringing a racketeering in corrupt organizations, uh, Art RICO. Uh, I have a tough time remembering the exact definition of RICO, but it's basically saying that Donald Trump engaged in RICO in Fulton County uh, because of his free speech and urging a proper count of the 2020 election. Well, we found out last week, and we told you about it, that Fannie Willis had decided to hire an outside lawyer to do the job, you know, to go out and investigate and then to bring the prosecution. And then we find out that Fannie Willis apparently has a special relationship. The lawyer she hired, the lawyer that she funneled as much as a million dollars of public money to, 
Turns out that she is the romantic partner of that lawyer. And uh, she now says that the reason she's being accused of wrongdoing for channeling almost a million dollars of public money to the guy she's sleeping with is because of her skin color. Quote, you cannot expect black women to be perfect and save the world. We need to be allowed to stumble. We need grace. Well, if you stumble right into bed with a boyfriend and then you channel almost a million dollars of public money to that boyfriend who had no qualifications to be able to do the investigation of Donald Trump, I think you've got a problem. That's the kind of stumble we don't forgive. In any case, glad to be with you on a Monday, MLK Day, a great American conservative, by the way. In a moment, the Biden administration has taken things as far as declaring parents who question their kids' schools terrorists. But is one state standing up for the union and its anti-parent bullies? We'll talk to the man who knows, the superintendent of Oklahoma schools. That and your phone. Hi. Just listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday, MLK Day. And glad to get to your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. And it's also a pleasure to welcome back to the program Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and former U.S. history teacher. Ryan, good to have you back on. Lars, always appreciate the opportunity to be on. Thanks for having me. Did your state really get slammed with this most recent weather? I have to ask you that first. We've got, you know, we, it, it hasn't been too bad. You know, thank, thank God it, it's really been pretty, you know, pretty decent. So we've got some ice and, you know, but but we don't have power outages, you know, across the state, things like that. But we've been watching it. A lot of schools are out tomorrow. Again, some slick roads, but we've avoided kind of the, the larger um, issues there with it. So thanks for asking. You know, I kind of wondered, though, when we hit weather like that, whether or not uh, having developed or having pushed ahead the development of uh, remote learning during the pandemic, uh, that that there might be schools that say, well, tomorrow you're going to all do school from home rather than just miss it altogether. I, I kind of thought that'd be a natural follow on to all the remote learning that was developed while we were in the, the pandemic, you know, sometimes for good reasons and sometimes because the unions just didn't want to work. But has that ever been a, a consideration to maybe move to that? Say, if we can't physically go to the school, teacher will teach from home, kids will learn from home, and we go on and and uh, and get credit for the day anyway. Yeah, no, we've got a lot that are doing that. I mean, we've really tried to get our schools to utilize that. You know, look, we don't like the virtual learning as an only option, but we do like it as an option. Yeah. Um, where, you know, you can really do a lot of things with it. We've seen people being able to accelerate learning for certain kids that are way ahead using virtual learning. We've seen additional learning be able to take place for kids that need extra help and remediation. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And so I do think that is one of the things of like continuing to allow individualization, personalization of learning experience through virtual learning. There, there can be a lot of good that comes from it as well. And I would imagine the folks who fight it are probably the unions because they see jobs. Let's talk about why Oklahoma is cutting ties with union-led and anti-parent education groups. Yes, sir. So, you know, we have, we have the teachers union, we have the administrators association, and the school board association. And we announced last week we are ending all partnerships um, with those groups. And I want to tell you kind of the, the system that they had set up. 
The system they had set up, which I know we talked a lot about the teachers' unions, but these other associations, too, where schools pay them for trainings, pay them for professional development, pay them for services, all of those things are a front for what they actually do, which is lobby at the state capitol against parents, against school choice, and for left-wing ideological positions. But again, their PR forward-facing and publicly-facing is, oh, you know, we're just here to provide services for districts. Well, no, what they're doing is they're allowing a funnel for taxpayer dollars to go through a school to them to then go and advocate and lobby uh, lawmakers for these left-wing causes. So we're ending all associations and partnerships with them. And we're going to say, listen, if you need services provided, Hey, we have, we've cut over a hundred jobs from the department. We have saved millions of dollars from the Department of Education. Hey, we, we are more than happy to help schools out for meaningful professional development, meaningful services, but we're not going to keep paying these groups or allowing groups to come in here like those and, and manipulate our legislature. So am I right in guessing that when the OSSBA, the CCOSA and the OPSRC, these various groups, when they worked, they tended, if or if or maybe they were exclusively pushing for left-wing policies in the schools. They weren't doing this representing all of the parents, but they were actually pushing for a particular set of political outcomes. That's right, and you know it's 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 one of those things where if you talk to most of their members, I think they and we've done this with a lot of our PR campaign around this to just let people know what their positions are at the Capitol. A lot of them are mortified by it. You know, that's not the bill of goods they were sold when they became members and everything else. They think they're given to a group that just does these type of services. They did not have any inkling that they are some of the biggest lobbying organizations spending millions of dollars a year at the state capitol to push for against parent rights, pushing for pornography in schools, blocking all of our anti-pornography bills, and fighting school choice every step of the way. They didn't know, that a lot of them, that these were all their positions, but it is those, those activists that lead these organizations that there's no doubt they're part of these national organizations that come into red states and try to undermine the will of the people. You know, one of the things I've wondered about, and that is, are you, are, is Oklahoma participating in a national uh, school boards or school administrator associations? Do you know? Yes, both of those groups are affiliated with the oh, national they, group. They are national. Okay. Because one of the things that's always floored me, Ryan, and this deals more with government in general, but I'll, I'll see something because we look for topics from the entire country, and I'll see something horrible happen, a colossal screw-up, you know, in some state or city. And then a year or two later, I'll see the same screw-up, same, you know, same basic causes happen in another city. And I said, I know that all of these people are members of the National Association of Counties, National Association of Cities, National Association of Governors, etc. And I've always thought that at least on paper, those are the kind of groups that would say, hey, we tried this in our state. It doesn't work or it doesn't work unless you do X, Y and Z and that they would have some lessons learned and they never seem to produce that kind of outcome. Oh, yeah, you couldn't be more right. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, you look at things and as conservatives, you know, one of the things that we we believe in is, you know, we look at the free market approach. We look at history. We look at what has worked, what hasn't worked and we apply it. Right. And so, hey, I'm the first one to tell, you know, the legislature, hey, if the program isn't working. I'm not going to continue doing it. You know, we'll, we'll move on and move on to something else, but we want to see results. But these groups don't function that way because that's not what they're about. What they're about is growing their power and their influence uh, by collecting as much money as possible and lobbying, frankly, to keep the status quo. Because the status quo right now is money in their pockets. The status quo doesn't jeopardize that money leaving through school choice, and, it, and they fight against 
every accountability measure because, hey, they're going to keep their members happy by ensuring, hey, schools, we're never going to allow any accountability to come to you. We're going to fight transparency. And so the, yeah, it's never – if you look at them as honest brokers, you would, you would think, well, guys, that didn't work, so we're going we're gonna to shift on to something else and try something different, right? That is never yeah. the way that they approach things. Well, it almost – you know, look, I'm a big believer in the private sector, Ryan, but – I thought, and this was years ago, long, long before the pandemic and all that, I said, why don't we have, you know, for instance, on those subjects that don't change a lot, like if you're teaching American history, you may find out a, a few new things about American history, but you say, well, a, a, you know, an, the ideal history teacher would start with American history and we'd start with the revolution or we'd start with the founding, you know, the original colonies, whatever it is, and you work to find sort of an ideal way to teach it. And, and a sequence of teaching it. And again, without all the politics in it. And once you've got that sort of ideal curriculum and syllabus and everything else, share that with everybody else in the country. And if it's actually owned by one school district, then it's owned by the public. And you, and, and to, to the extent that you might even cut a lot of the textbook companies out of, of this, because the textbook companies kind of have you by the short hairs, don't they? Again, Lars, you know, you, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with you on that. You know, we, you've heard, you know, the founders and, and Supreme Court justices over time talk about the laboratory of democracy that yep. is beautiful in our country. We've got 50 states. We, you know, we get to see what works, what doesn't, and we apply it. And you start, it, the same could be possible for education if you viewed it in the same lens as we view um, uh, the free market, the same way we view our, Demo our democratic republic, right? That, that look, we are going to weigh ideas out in the ones that have the best. Uh, you know, uh, track record in history and the best logical conclusion, those are going to be the things we follow. Our education system, with as many schools as we have, with as many things as we tried, we should have a base level of understanding how kids learn. And frankly, we do. We just don't apply it. We don't use best practice. We don't do the things like you just laid out because it is disruptive, it is disruptive to a status quo where there is big dollars in the groups we've listed off tonight they want to keep things the same way, and what you and I just described disrupts that very system, so they fight it uh, tooth and nail. See, and then you could take that ideal way of doing things and say, well, somebody made the suggestion we should modify this or tweak that. You could do those changes when you got kind of a consensus that, yeah, that's a, that's a better way to teach that. You should do, you know, 18, 12 before you do other things. But, you know, and then a brand-new history teacher like you when you were brand-new would say, well, Here's sort of the ideal way to teach it. This has been worked on for a long time. If you decide you want to do it a little bit differently, that's fine. But that gives you a game plan for that for the first couple of years you're teaching history in high school. Ryan, thanks so very much for what you do for the people of Oklahoma, and we appreciate your time. In a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. And what about the FAA's new diversity plan to hire people with psychiatric disabilities? That's next. The Lars Larson Show. A promise is potent. You are in control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. 
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to get some emails and also this crazy story from the FAA about its increasing diversity efforts. But first, to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Mike, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, these uh, states that are uh, taking Trump's name off the ballot, Yep. I hope the people will do a write-in and write his name in and show the states that we don't want your bureaucracy anymore. We want a president that's going to do something instead of steal from us. Do you know why that's not going to work, Mike? Why? Because, at least in the case of Colorado, I believe it's also true for the state of Maine, they've said if we remove Trump from the ballot because we've decided that he is disqualified by being guilty of insurrection, how they found find a guy guilty without a trial or evidence or anything else, it, it, it remains to be explained. And the Supreme Court is likely to slap them down hard and say, you know, you can't do this. But... If they take him off the ballot, my understanding is they have said, we will not count write-in votes for a disqualified candidate. So they simply won't count the ballots. Well, that, that's, uh, that's not right either. I mean, I agree. It's supposed to be the people are supposed to be telling the government what to do, not the government telling us what to do. And, and the people really who disagree with you bad. on that are Joe Biden and the Democrat Party, because... I would I would challenge you this way, Mike, you've seen lots of conservatives like me, lots of uh, Republicans like office holders who stood up and objected. Have you seen more than a couple of Democrats or elected office holders who have a D in front of their name? Have you seen them stand up and say, this isn't right to, to knock somebody off the ballot, especially somebody that you're knocking off the ballot only because he's so very popular? Have you seen any Democrats do that yet? No, because they they want that money. They're afraid they're going to lose all that money if he gets elected because he's going to veto a lot of their bills and stuff and take the money away from them. They're scared to death, yep. I think, Mike, not of what he will take from them, but the fact that Donald Trump has properly identified the deep state as being one of the biggest dangers Americans face. And I can tell you, Real examples, people think the deep state was something that's fictional or mythical or whatever. Think about this. An awful lot of our country is now being run by bureaucrats, in both in Washington, D.C. and in the various states. And you say, well, who elected these people? And you say, nobody. And you say, well, how can I get to these people and tell them what my point of view is? And they'll say, that bureaucrat, he wasn't hired by you. He can't be fired by you. He doesn't, he or she doesn't give a damn what you, the public, think. The only people you get to do that with are representatives and senators at the federal level and state lawmakers at the local level where you say, I don't like that bill you voted for. I'm not voting for you the next time around. They are threatened by that. Bureaucrats, especially bureaucrats in the federal bureaucracy, they are hired. They can stay there effectively for life. They have locked in pensions. They are almost unfireable. So why should they give a damn what you think about anything? Yeah, I, I agree with you, but we've got to do something. I mean, this is just this is pathetic anymore.
I agree with you. But, Mike, uh, they, 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 for the most part, don't care. And, frankly, the deep state does a lot of benefits for both re- Republican rhinos and for the Democrat Party. So they want the deep state to stay. Let's go to Leonard. Hey, Leonard, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Yeah, Lars, I was uh, driving home and I heard you talking about foreign nationals owning uh, property in the United States. Yeah. I have a... I might disagree with you. I might not here. The okay. issue is, is uh, are you saying an individual who owns a corporation, a U.S. corporation, shouldn't own the land that it sets on? No. What I'm saying is, if you are a foreign national, should you be allowed to own land in the United States? I mean, clearly there are a bunch of foreign companies that do business in the United States, and we don't mind them doing business here. The question is, should individuals like this guy, Chen Tianquao, uh, own 200,000 acres in one state? Should he be allowed as a foreign national to own land in America? You and I can't buy land in China. Well, no, I, I agree with that part of it. But you, what you're missing the point is, is an individual can own a U.S. corporation. And yes. you're, uh, if that's the case, he's still a foreign national. I'm just saying that you got to be careful of what you're saying in regards to if one person owns a corporate U.S. corporation, he's entitled to own that, uh, even if he is say, from China. I don't really but want is, to sell but land. Is there, and, 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 Leonard, you realize that most of the corporations you're talking about of any size are not owned by a single individual. In fact, it's I'm, I'd be hard-pressed to name a large corporation that's owned by a single individual. So if somebody from China wants to buy stock in Microsoft or Nike or Intel or Caterpillar Tractor, they can certainly do that. But they don't own the company outright, uh, do they? Well, yeah. And, but yes, there is though. I, no, I understand that part of it. But there is uh, there is corporations. I worked for one for twenty some years, and the family, one owner, yeah. from and actually from Japan, but he was still he was the one that owned that property. He, he owned owns, the corporation. Yeah, I understand that, but but is it different? We're talking about real property, and I've made it clear the question deals with real property and not with corporations. So. If a corporation yeah, no, wants yeah, to but, do, go ahead. Yeah, but he owns. But he owned. Okay, so he owned a manufacturing plant here yeah. in Oregon. He owned that plant. He owned the land that a book set on. So he does. I'm just saying that you got to be. If you're saying that no foreign national can own property in the United States, you can't do that because there's corporations that uh, are owned solely by one person or one family. Well, and in that case, I'd be fine with that kind of limitation. For example, there are a lot of companies that operate in communist China, and they are Taiwanese companies that make things like circuit, you know, uh, circuit boards and things like that. I can't. I, I think Foxconn might be one of them. I believe that's a Taiwanese company that operates both in the United States and in China. But do they own land as foreign nationals? And 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 maybe you'll have to divide it out and say you can own the corporation. But the corporation can't own the land, or it has to own it through some other mechanism. Maybe you can lease the land instead, but we're not going to let you own part of America. Because I think there's a legitimate concern. Uh, I don't know whether you agree with me or not, but there's a legitimate concern about foreign nationals controlling large amounts of land 
And in some cases, this this piece, the 200,000 that this guy owns, doesn't seem to be particularly defense-related. But there are a lot of, of purchases being made of land by foreign nationals who own land next to U.S. military bases. And in places where you, you might have a legitimate concern, I think you do have a legitimate concern about what their real agenda is. Uh, d- does that make sense? Oh, yes. And that I agree with you on. I just wanted to make sure that when we state these things, you have to allow uh, individuals, you know, to who owns corporations. You can't just say, well, no, they can't own it uh, because that would uh, stifle investment in our own company, in our own country. But the the issue is, is I agree with you. Well, and, and Leonard, and a lot you of and I companies. both know that there are times where a foreign company might say, we want to buy a, 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 another, you know, a company like ours in the United States because we want to extend our reach to there. And, and we put limitations on that. We might say, well, you're allowed to own, own that, but you can't own the piece of that company that does, say, defense work. Now, we certainly put limits on that. And, uh, yes, but, and I completely agree with you on that, Lars. Because do you remember the, the brake company in Michigan that was purchased by a, a Chinese company? And we said, but that company makes parts for military, for, for military use. And there's a reason that the Chinese communists want to own that company. Leonard, you bring up an interesting point, though. Back in just a moment, you got the Lawrence Larson Show. I'm going to ask our friend John Schweppe, who's Director of Policy and Government Affairs of the American Principles Project, if he can get out his crystal ball and tell us with all the snow and the blizzards and everything else, I guess more snow, more snow in Des Moines than they've had in five days since 1941. And even with all those factors in and all the polls, how well is Donald Trump going to do today or tonight in the Iowa caucuses as they're just starting to gather right now? Uh, and how well are Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis going to do? Well, I'll tell you, Lars, you know, uh, yesterday I think we learned that, you know, the Cowboys were heavy favorites and they still lost to the Green Bay Packers. So you don't want to <laughs> say anything's a lock, but Trump, clearly that voters feel strongly that they want him to have a second term, that they want him to be the nominee. It's, it's, it's become pretty apparent. You look at numbers, um, enthusiasm, it's all there. And so the anticipation tonight, and I'm hardly the only person to say it, it does look like Trump will win the Iowa caucus. And the, the big question will be who comes in second place. Yeah, wh- who, who becomes the least second place loser? Because it's really up to Ron DeSantis. I mean, I don't know if Vivek Ramaswamy is going to make any kind of appearance at all. But but between Haley and DeSantis, they're going to roughly split maybe 30 points and probably not equally. Yeah, I mean, look, part of it is it's just really difficult to compete against Trump. And I I think these these folks have understand, you know, they're understanding that. Uh, I think both DeSantis and Haley, it looks like they have good ground games in Iowa. They've done the work. I know DeSantis talked about how he went to all 99 counties. But, you know, Trump is a larger-than-life personality, and ultimately you got to make the case to voters why not him. And I think for Republican voters, you know, they still feel like he got uh, jobbed in the, the, the 2020 election, and they want to give him another chance at this, especially with a weaker-than-ever Joe Biden. And I think, you know, that's obviously uh, affecting how they're, they're going to pledge their support tonight. You know what's funny about this, John? I mean, I, 
I, I've had friends who worked at National Review, and and I still stay in touch with some of them, but not very close touch. But they went and they went never Trump way back when, you know, way back in 2016, and I don't think they've they've ever found their way back. Um, and and l- this morning I was reading a piece from NRO, and it was a guy trying to say, well, the reason people are sticking with Trump is they've told all their friends that they're a Trump person, and they're embarrassed to give that up. I don't think it's that at all. I mean, everybody I talk to who likes Trump, and I'm one of those people, uh, you know, who's been a staunch Trump supporter, I'm not doing it because I'm afraid to give up a position that I've staked out. I'm doing it because I think he did a damn good job for four years, and he'll do a damn good job another four years. Uh, we just have to get him past the Democrats, and they're cheating. Yeah, I say this as, you know, self-deprecating because I, I am in the D.C. area, but you know, ultimately, I think Republicans in D.C., we kind of overthink this. Our voters are simply, you know, looking for uh, for the guy that they think fought for them for four years and had a successful track record. And, you know, obviously that's, that's impacting them. And I saw that op-ed, too. I think it was Dan McLaughlin, who I like. But, you know, I think just ultimately it's a little bit out of touch, you know, and I think we're going to see that with the results in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, you know, all of this kind of oh should we go with trump should we not go with trump our voters really aren't dealing with that they're just like oh yeah yeah trump's running again let's let's support it i also don't understand i could see nikki haley prepping herself for a 2028 run but she seems to be doing more damage than good at least that's my view and i've never really thought badly of her before i don't like all of her i don't like a lot of her positions on the issues but lately it doesn't seem that a day can go by without her getting one one or another things wrong whether it's uh, transgender issues, whether it's sympathy for illegal aliens. Uh, I, I can think of a number of examples. Is she, what in the world is she doing? I mean, she's, I don't think she's angling for the VP slot because I don't think that's going to happen, let's hope. Uh, but, but what is she doing other than communicating that, uh, that she's not as conservative as anybody else out there in the Republican field? Well, I think she's doing that deliberately, right? Because the way New Hampshire works, you know, she wants Democrats out there voting for her. And actually, you know, Bill Crystal, uh, the, the former Republican, <laughs> he, he, he endorsed her and said that she'd be the right candidate. So, you know, well, I, there's the kiss of death for you. Absolutely. But I think when you look at it, you know, she isn't for all the talk of DeSantis running a bad campaign or being a bad candidate. I think he's much better than her. In terms of his ability on stage, she, she's a walking gas machine. And, and you know, I, I think ultimately once New Hampshire happens, you know, we'll see if DeSantis, you know, if he gets out of the race or not, that'll, that'll make a difference. But I, I think she's going to get beat up in, in New Hampshire and be done. And, uh, and then this thing will be over after, after South Carolina. I mean, why has, why has DeSantis done so badly? Because I would think on paper... Other than getting sideways with Trump, and I think there's some some things to be said about that, because Trump never misses an opportunity. He didn't over the weekend. I watched his speech uh, to remind people this is the guy that he bailed out and and who went on to become governor. And now he's running against him. And and that doesn't I, I just I thought it made a whole lot more sense for maybe DeSantis. Uh, before all that happened to angle for a VP slot and then run in 28. And I, and I, on, and on, I can't figure out why he's doing so badly because I, even though Trump is my guy, um, that, that DeSantis should be doing better than he is, shouldn't he? Yeah, no. And you, if you saw early polling back in December of last year, you know, DeSantis was neck and neck with Trump, but I think ultimately this is no fault of his own. You know, I really like DeSantis. I think he's got a good future in the Republican party. I think the, you know, folks trying to write his obituary are, are being a little premature here. But, you know, ultimately, Trump 
and the indictments, I, I think the indictments basically told Republican voters, hey, you know, the Democrats are coming after our guy. They're trying to pick our nominee. And, you know, our voters uh, don't like that. And I think they ultimately decide and we'll, we'll see what the results. But I think they're ultimately going to decide, you know what, if, if you don't like Trump, we're going to vote for him twice as hard. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what's going to happen. Not not twice as much like the Democrats would, twice would but hard, twice, twice as, as hard. hard. Yeah, and just legal. so people caught that distinction, because that's that's the piece. And, and the fact that the Democrats, I would think that somebody in the Democrat Party would have said this whole thing of trying to knock him off the ballot is a lost cause. And we're going to get our heads, you know, handed to us by the U.S. Supreme Court. And yet nobody did that. You know, what do you got? 16 states with active lawsuits trying to kick him off the ballot and say, is that really the way that you you think you're going to win with Americans is by saying we can't beat this guy. So we'll just knock him off the ballot. That seems like, you know, a losing proposition at the front end and tremendously damaging to the Democrats. So if they're damaging themselves, what, who has it said, you know, when your enemy's making a mistake, don't interrupt him. Uh, fine. Go ahead and do it. But it seems stupid. Their whole argument is that they're trying to preserve democracy. And so for Biden, and he didn't condemn this, you know, he, he, I don't think he totally endorsed it, but he certainly didn't condemn it. And, you know, this is their argument that they're the ones trying to preserve, you know, the system of government, but they're the first ones ever to try to make it a uniparty system. I mean, it's, it's totally crazy. And so, again, you know, this is the type of thing when you talk to normal voters, I don't mean Republicans or Democrats, I mean, you know, just your standard swing voters in elections, I think they really consider that stuff. And they're going to think about, you know, is this really the party we want? I think no doubt. Hey, John, thanks very much. That's John Schweppe from American Principles. The Lars Larson Show. Is my gruff the crime dog? Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. It is MLK Day, but we're live, no worries. And we've got the Iowa caucuses going on tonight. We'll talk about them in detail once we know the results. Is Donald Trump going to get 60% or is he going to get 70% out of the Iowa caucuses? And just how badly are Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley going to finish? In any case, I don't think either one of them expects to get anywhere close to the guy who seems still the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination this summer. But as you say, uh, months are a long time when it comes to politics. Glad to have you with me. You want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism? It happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. I uh, haven't had any good naysayers yet for MLK Day, but that's all right. There's still time. And uh, if you want to vote in today's X poll, the poll on X that we used to call Twitter, should we forbid foreign land purchases or land purchases by foreign citizens of countries that won't let Americans buy land in their country? For example, 
China does not allow foreign nationals to own land. But the second largest foreign landowner in the United States is a Chinese citizen billionaire. He is a member of the Communist Party, and he holds some high-ranking positions in the Chinese Communist Party, and yet he owns 200,000 acres in the United States. Now, he bought it about 10 years ago. It's only come to public light recently, even though all foreign purchases of uh, land inside the United States are supposed to be reported to the government. This one just became public, and I saw the first reports of it. I'll credit the Daily Caller News Foundation and also the Daily Caller, the big paper, uh, if we can still call them papers, out of Great Britain. In any case, they report that Chen Tianquao owns about 200,000 acres in the state of Oregon, bought it 10 years ago. He's also got properties in Manhattan and in Los Angeles, and apparently he's a high-ranking member of the Communist Party. So you can find today's X-Poll at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. You can join by going to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, on First Amendment Friday, I made the question go this way. You see, Texas has decided that if Joe Biden's Border Patrol will not enforce immigration law, then Texas passed its own laws, making it illegal to enter Texas from a foreign country unless you do it legally. Now, did the Border Patrol appreciate that? I have a feeling that a lot of people in CBP actually don't like what Joe Biden has had them doing, which is basically serving as a concierge service to the illegal aliens who've been entering America. So should border states take control by blocking Joe Biden's border agents? I answered yes. So did 96% of you. Only 4% of you said no to that idea. In any case, glad to have you with me. A shout out to our friends in Chico, California, where they listen to great talk radio every day on KPAY. That's FM 93.9. And you can find my show there Monday through Friday. I want to mention the Federal Reserve. And believe me, I'm not a fan of the Federal Reserve. I would rather that we didn't have a pseudo-government, pseudo-private agency than monkeys with America's economy and interest rates in the way that it does well, guess what? The post-millennial, and they're reporting, I trust, implicitly, Andy No and my friend Ari Hoffman and others at the post-millennial. On Friday, the Federal Reserve announced the preliminary results of its 2023 financial statements. It shows our central bank, the bank of last resort, ran an operating loss, and you're not even going to believe this number, in 2023, they ran an operating loss of $114 billion. Now, we've talked before on this program about banks that end up being taken out of the banking business and sold to somebody else because the Treasury Department comes in and says, you're looking like kind of a lost cause, so we've decided somebody else is going to buy you. In this case, maybe somebody has to buy the Federal Reserve. They ran a loss of $114 $0.3 billion, the largest loss ever posted by the Federal Reserve. That massive deficit, uh, the post-millennial reports, was caused by the bank, by the Federal Reserve itself, jacking up interest rates to combat skyrocketing inflation and could continue as long as the short-term interest rates remain at the same levels, which 
They don't seem to be coming down fast anytime soon. The Fed is required to give its profits to the Treasury at the end of the year, which is used to pay down the U.S. deficit. So there's not going to be any deficit repayment this time, not when they're running a $114 billion loss. At the end of 2022, when it began turning a loss, that's the first time in 107 years that the Federal Reserve Bank has had to suspend payments to the Treasury because of its losses. And if they're going to continue the losses as long as they have high interest rates, does anybody see any interest rate uh, drops coming anytime soon? No, nor do I. And how does Joe Biden's EPA manage to lose track of billions of dollars in taxpayer funds? Well, it turns out that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, according to Daily Wire, failed to suitably report billions of dollars in money it spent in 2022. This comes from the EPA Inspector General. And of course, Republican lawmakers are saying this is nuts. The Inspector General's team found that award level obligations, meaning its spending commitments, were underreported by $1.2 billion. And monies that were actually paid out were underreported by almost $6 billion. That means that almost 13% of their award-level obligations and 98% of all the money the EPA spent was not reported in fiscal 2022. Now, what's the excuse for that? You're handed billions of dollars of the taxpayer's money, you spend the money, and you can't even keep track of where the money goes and properly report it. It sounds like a house cleaning is in order, although under the Biden administration, I don't think that's especially likely. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Texas Bill writes in from email. He says, Lars, the talking heads on TV keep saying that Trump has a great chance of winning the next election. They're wrong. They thought there would be a big red wave in the last two elections. It didn't happen. And now elections are won with mail-in votes, not people. Democrats buy the people who count the votes. They're not going to waste a lot of time and money getting people to vote for them. Democrats are masters at fraud. This is what they do best. Nancy Pelosi planned the January 6th riot to stop the challenge of the 2020 election results. I think he's right about that. It worked. She got the FBI to do all the dirty work and then blamed it on the Proud Boys and the Promise Keepers. And now we have 700 political prisoners, just like Russia would do. Signed, Texas Bill. Send those emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And coming up in just a moment, your phone calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Major cities have been hit with all-time crime increases, leaving law enforcement on the front lines. Is the anti-cop narrative fueling a dangerous wave of pro-criminal policies and violence? We're going to talk about that next on the Lars Larson Show. the work so you don't have to bringing the political heat he's lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and a real pleasure to welcome to the program sean gallagher one of the co-founders of the pipe hitter foundation sean uh thanks very much for coming on no it's a pleasure thanks for having me now of course i think people know the story of eddie gallagher but would you mind reminding them of the details 
sure. So Ed, Ed Gallagher is my brother, um, Navy SEAL chief, served 20 years in the U.S. Navy, 15 of those as a Navy SEAL, uh, was deployed eight times, legitimate, just true American hero. He's been to Iraq and Afghanistan four times each. He's fought pretty much every enemy we've ever had in the past 20 years, um, was incredibly falsely accused of war crimes, was thrown in jail without due process, had so many of his rights violated, um, and this was under the Trump administration, and we, we fought as a family. My sister-in-law, Andrea, and I, his, his wife, uh, started a grassroots movement, fought uh, tooth and nail for him to get his, his face in the media and attention towards his case. And once the president found out what was going on, Eddie had been imprisoned for about seven, eight months before his trial began. They let him out so that he could properly defend himself. He went to court, and we always say instead of being found innocent, he had to prove his innocence. Eddie was presumed innocent, or excuse me, presumed guilty until he had to prove his innocence. But he did in the court of law. He was resoundingly found innocent of all all major charges, and uh, it just became a really big black eye for the military and for political persecutions and prosecutions. And since then, our family, after what we had gone through, we decided that we, we knew going through the process, we had heard about a lot of other cases that were similar to my brother's. And as a result of that, decided to form the Piper Foundation, which I'm a founding member of, along with Eddie and Andrea, my sister-in-law. We have amazing board of directors comprised of all former military and law enforcement. And basically, our mission is to serve those who served us. So anybody that's worn the uniform in the military or first responders who finds themselves the target of a political prosecution or unfairly targeted for simply just doing their job, uh, we try and step in and help them any way we can, uh, either providing grants to them and their family for legal defense, to helping them kind of navigate the media landscape, basically just supporting those who are supporting us on an everyday basis, trying to, to have the backs of those that wear the uniform. I'm talking to Sean Gallagher. And by the way, just so people know, so it's and you tell me if I'm overstating this, Sean, your brother was they tried to convict your brother of murder for killing an ISIS terrorist. Right. Precisely. Yeah. Um, basically, it's as, it's as absurd as it sounds. Um, and even though we lived through it, and even though we, we, we got through it, it, it's still almost comical about how bad it was. Eddie was fighting. So it was under General Madison, Donald Trump. Um, when the, they gave the Navy SEALs and, and the Marines the order to clear Mosul in Iraq of ISIS. And so they took an aggressive posture and fight to the enemy. Basically, they had bombed a compound where they, a bunch of ISIS fighters were. One survived. He was captured by the Iraqi partner forces, the ones that we had been working with called the IDF. And um, basically, they had brought him back. And this guy was on death's door. And there was a bunch of people who concocted a story that said Eddie had had killed him after they had already tried to kill them, basically. But they went to trial, and it, it turns out that all of the accusations were preposterous and false. Um, yet the government doubled down on them because of a political motive. And yeah, basically, it's just what you said. Ed, Ed who, was, who was directed, you know, as a Navy SEAL, uh, as an instrument of U.S. government, was sent and deployed to Iraq to, to pretty much kill the enemy. And then when he got home, they said that he had killed the enemy the wrong way, even though specifically what he was accused of he was he was acquitted of but the whole premise of itself was just madness um sometimes you know it's been about five years almost and you look back on it and it, it's still as preposterous as it sounds but for those that really wanted the scoop of the story my brother and my sister-in-law wrote a really really good book called the man in the arena it details the whole thing and again it served as an inspiration for us to, to form a nonprofit, the piper foundation to, to try and help those who are in similar situations, because as absurd as Eddie's case was, 
we found out that this, you know, our family's incidents, this trial, the whole thing, we're not the only ones. This happens especially to, to law enforcement officers all the time. And by the way, Sean, I want people to hear it correctly. Uh, You know, the term pipe fitter is very familiar, but pipe hitter in special forces, as I understand, uh, the slang is you've got to have a pipe hitter. That means among the special forces, the guys and gals, but the guys primarily who are known as the guy who's aggressive, fearless and goes out and gets it done. So if you've got a really tough situation, you say, who do we send? We send a pipe hitter and he goes in and gets it done. That's what the the term is about, right? Yeah, precisely. It, it's it's almost a term a term of respect and endearment towards someone who, yeah, gets the job done. Someone who's respected, someone who's reliable. Um, they use it uh, as a term of affection, like yeah, he's a real pipe hitter, someone that actually you know is reliable, gets the job done, does what he's supposed to do, um, and especially in an aggressive and and you know a, a manner in which lives up to the creed that they all operate by. Yeah, and, and that's where, that, that was my brother's inspiration that he wanted to call our, our family foundation the Pipe Hitter Foundation to back up those who are, you know, the good ones, the ones that are doing the job, that are putting their lives at risk and in, in, in getting the mission done. Because it's funny, Sean, I mean, I've covered cops most of my life. I've covered a, a less to the military. But among cops, there are people saying, oh, yeah, that guy's, you know, he always takes the toughest assignments. And you say, well, those are the ones who generate the greatest number of complaints. Yeah, they do. Uh, the guy or gal who just shows up and does his shift and goes home, uh, you know, they, they don't generate a lot of complaints. But that's because they're not nearly as effective as the other ones. What is it that people listening to this can do to help out the Pipe Hitter Foundation and is some of it just getting the word out that when you know of a military member who's run in, you know, gets jacked up somehow, uh, that, that there's a way to, to get their story out in front of people and maybe give them some help with some resources, one kind or another? Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate you mentioning it. So you, you can go to our website, pipehitterfoundation.org.org. Actually, most, the majority of the cases that we're taking on now are uh, law enforcement officers and first responders. Um, because as you mentioned, the ones that are doing their job, the ones that are protecting the streets, going after criminals, essentially doing what they're supposed to do, are targeted. And it's having a huge deleterious effect on morale, one, on safety, on justice. But it's really kind of breaking the spirits of law enforcement. We hear about it all the time. We, I come from a long, long line of military in our family, but we're also related to some law enforcement officers. And we have someone on our board, like Rob O'Donnell, who is a NYPD detective, and it's one of the things you talk to them, and especially they, they talk to their buddies that are still serving on the on the force, and they're so conscious, you know, of the climate of what's going on. They're conscious of, of just what you said, the people who really want to do their job, protect the streets, serve the community, go after the bad guys. They're so aware now that if one minor thing goes wrong or if one false complaint is lodged, it can destroy their entire life. Because it's also one thing that we, you know, remind people of as someone who's related to a bunch of people in the military and and law enforcement. It's not just them who serves, it's their family. They're typically the main sole providers. And so as they're approaching suspects, as they're trying to do their job, they're taking into account that if someone lodges a complaint, if they become the focus of a political prosecution, their whole livelihood could be at risk. And that now factors into what they're doing. And you know, just to give you one small anecdote, we're friend, I have a family member who's part of a SWAT team uh, in Pennsylvania, not too far outside Philly. 
And I was talking to him, you know, they'll, they'll do their job anytime they're called. But we were talking brass tacks, you know, about what it's like now in, in this era that we're living in. And he just said, there are areas they know that they can go in and be aggressive without being called, like to actually do their, their jobs as cops, right. to per, you know, to peruse a city or peruse an area. And they know where the crime is. You know, cops know their communities. And people rely on them. You know, they, they call on them. There's people in those communities that, that are victims of crime that want police there. But they know now that if they go into those communities, you know, especially if they're not called, if they're just doing surveillance, if they're just patrolling, that the risk of them getting in trouble is so high that it impacts their ability to be, you know, what's called assertive or, you know, to try and patrol on their own rather than just being called to a scene of a crime that's already been committed. No, and Sean, Sean Gallagher, by the way, the brother brother of Eddie Gallagher, is one of the co-founders of the Pipe Hitter Foundation. Look for it at pipehitterfoundation.org. Pipehitterfoundation.org. Sean, thanks very much. Back in just a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. People say our country is... When the line is drawn in the sand, he's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. Yeah, when you ask for a short approach, I expect you to turn your base to beat the numbers. Yeah, that's amazing. That is an air traffic controller, and this... I saw this last week and I thought, I've just got to put this in front of you because this is so crazy. And I guess it shows you just where a lot of things are going in this country right now. But it's an air traffic controller. That's the young lady's voice. You're going to hear the other voice. It's a man who's flying an airplane who's been flying for 15 years. And he's about to make an approach at an airport, the Denton Enterprise Airport in Texas. And as he's lining up for the approach, the tower starts criticizing him and saying, you know, you're doing this the wrong way. You called for the wrong thing. So listen to what the pilot said back to the tower, to the air traffic controller. Well, I will definitely look up the definition of short approach because I've never seen where it says you turn base of beam the numbers because I don't see how you could possibly do that. Well, I Googled it, actually. I Googled short approach, and it said to turn your base a beam or before the numbers. And you will land probably touchdown around this field. Now, I want you to imagine this. You're a pilot who's been flying for 15 years. My dad always wanted me to learn how to fly small planes. I never did. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I didn't have the money, and it's not an inexpensive thing to do. And now these days I don't have the time because my rule has been that if I was going to get a pilot's license and keep it current, I'd want to do at least 100 hours of flying every year. And given that I live in a place where it's raining about six months of the year, I'd have to be flying virtually every weekend to make sure that I stayed proficient enough. This is not something like driving a car or riding a bike. You have to be good at what you do, and you can't afford any mistakes. But imagine this. You've been flying for 15 years. 
And here you've got somebody in the control tower who's lecturing you, saying you use the wrong terminology. And does she know this because of her extensive training uh, by the FAA or by the government or at a school? No, she knows it because she Googled it. Listen to what she said as well. The third soundbite, please. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've worked at different airports. I don't know. I don't know. She doesn't know. But the pilot said, look, this is it. In essence, what he was asking for, a short approach, is when a pilot makes a request to land the plane a bit more quickly. Instead of waiting in a normal flight pattern to land, the pilot has an abbreviated route. You know, because you fly your downwind leg and then you turn 90 degrees and then you line up with a runway and you turn again and at certain altitudes. Now, one of the best books on this called One Mile at a Time explains why this is so important. Keep in mind that all of this is happening on the frequency during a critical phase of flight for the pilots when the focus is supposed to be on safely directing the pilots. A petition has now been launched to get this one air traffic controller removed from her position. It says her actions were not only jeopardizing pilot safety, but damaging the reputation of our city of Denton, Texas. It has reached a point where her conduct is attracting national attention, an unfortunate circumstance that does not reflect well on the community. Listen, I'm, I'm a flying enthusiast, even though I've never had a even though I've never had a pilot's license, I've gone flying every time I've been offered the opportunity to do it. I'm fascinated by it. And I have great respect for the men and women who are capable of flying private planes. Air traffic controllers working for the government and lecturing pilots with 15 years of experience because they looked something up on Google. I don't have a whole lot of respect for that. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a, you know, if you're a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, I don't mind taking that call either. We might even get some calls from pilots as well. Uh, but you can certainly be a naysayer and we'll put you right up to the head of the line. Uh, if you want to send emails, that's easy. Talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our X poll, used to be called Twitter, now it's X, should we forbid land purchases by citizens of countries that will not let Americans buy land in their country, like China, for example, finding out this past weekend that a land purchase in the United States 10 years ago, a Chinese national who is still a member of the Communist Party and has held top positions in the Chinese Communist Party, owns 200,000 acres of land in the United States. He is the second largest foreign landowner in the U.S., and he is a Chinese billionaire, but he's a Chinese national. And then you ask yourself, but couldn't I buy land in China? And the answer to that is no, you can't buy land in China. Uh, China does not allow foreign nationals to buy land in China. And I'm asking whether or not we should make that the law here. The reaction to that story from a lot of people, and I've had tons of emails about it, is, well, why don't we make it, you know, impossible for people to buy land in our country? You want to lease land? You can do that. You want to own a company that operates here under U.S. law? Go ahead and do that. But how in the world do you say that we should have foreign nationals owning land in our country while still allied with communist China when Americans can't own land in China owned by American citizens. If that makes sense to you, uh, I'd be glad to hear the naysayer objection. Now, let me ask you this. I've been hearing, and I was reading over the weekend, about what's happening in Brunswick, Maine. It is a town run by Democrats, and it is spending millions of dollars to build luxury apartments. Forget this. 
illegal aliens. The budget from the Maine State Housing Authority, that's ordinarily providing housing for poor people in a state, the Housing Authority has allocated $3.5 million to cover the rent of 60 so-called migrant families, meaning people who are in the country, usually illegally, in five buildings in Brunswick for two years, two years of free rent. You've got American veterans who are living on the streets in many places in America, and here you have the state of Maine voting $3.5 million for just one of the projects they have, and I suspect that they have more of them, for 60 migrant families. Do the math on that. It's about $70,000 per family to pay their rent. Now, there are about 582,000 Americans who are homeless in 2022, according to the Federal Housing and Urban Development Department, and yet American taxpayers are going to fund free rent for people who aren't even supposed to be in our country at all. The state is also spending $100,000 to assist dozens of Brunswick migrants. They keep using the term migrants instead of illegals. In some cases, they're seeking asylum. And in most cases, they will be turned down. That is the history of those cases. An asylum seeker from Nigeria says her next luxury apartment feels like a palace compared to the old apartments that she was in, and the taxpayers are footing the bill. Do you think we should be paying attention and paying for the upkeep for people who are illegally in our country? Because I'm one of those who does not. Dwight writes in, Lars, I was very impressed and proud of you for your stand on Friday on One God. I know that for you to get into debates on your show about uh, God has the possibility of reducing your audience. I know that you have a large Catholic following in your audience. I happen to be Protestant and tell them the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And that did get under their skin. Thanks for standing up the true biblical belief in Christianity and the way to salvation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for that, Dwight. I very much appreciate the feedback as well, because one of the things I believe in, the most important thing to me, is my faith in God and Jesus Christ. But do I talk about it a lot on the show? No, I don't. And in fact, I got a lot of feedback from people who are Catholic who said, we didn't appreciate your point of view on Catholicism. And I said, well, it's my point of view. I said, I'm glad to afford you an opportunity to express your point of view, but that's simply my point of view. It's my opinion. And as I always tell people, I don't ever promise you the truth. I promise to tell you what my opinion is and how I reached that opinion, the factual basis behind it. In that case, it came up because of something else we were discussing, and Catholicism came up, and I didn't feel like hiding my point of view. I never do. Uh, shout out to our friends in Meridian, Connecticut, who listen to great talk radio every day on WMMW. That's AM 1470 in Meridian, and you can find this show there Monday through Friday. Glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And coming up, is the Red Sea in danger of closing as a shipping lane and causing skyrocketing gas and oil prices for you and me? We'll talk about that next. Fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. 
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's really a pleasure to welcome Joe Early, uh, who is running as a Republican congressional candidate in West Virginia's 2nd District, although I've got to do right by the man. Now, uh, Sergeant Early, is it Mass Sergeant, Master Guns, or First Sergeant? Because I was never able to find uh, out. I'm a retired First Sergeant. For, retired but I, first had, yeah, but I've held those other titles as well. Oh, see, I thought Master Guns came above First Sergeant, but I, you know, I could, I, I've certainly been wrong before. <laughs> I could be wrong again. Well, uh, well, the the Master Gun, you got that's more of a Marine Corps uh, Gunny Sergeant, uh, which is our E seven. But but in the Army, um, our our uh, kind of like a term of endearment for uh, First Sergeants is top. It's called you you're the top sergeant in a uh, in a company or or a unit, and that's normally what you go by. So they call you top. But, uh, well, we appreciate your service to the United States of America. For If nothing else, if I don't get anything else right, we appreciate your service. So, uh, okay. Sar- uh, Sergeant, tell me this. Um, how's the campaign going before we get to talking about the Red Sea and what's going on there? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm a grassroots campaign, and we are moving very uh, strategic into May. And uh, we have, uh, we've got a lot of support in the uh, in the district and uh, i think we're looking strong we're very competitive uh, and we're gaining ground can you imagine what we'd be able to do on on capitol hill if we got people like you up there uh, who are taking care of matters and <laughs> instead of some of the uh, the I, I guess the spineless types that we're seeing up there right now who may be just selling us out on the border and a lot of other issues well i i think you're absolutely correct in that statement uh there's this cycle this election cycle as well as last cycle you see a lot of veterans that are coming um, and, and wanting to throw their hat in the ring because they know that they have what it takes. They've got the grit, the tenacity, and the vigor to stand in the halls of Congress on day one. Uh, and the, the biggest problem we have, and you touched on it uh, just a second ago, is we have jellyfish and spineless politicians in there that are selling us out. I mean, we see it, we see it on the, uh, the southern border. Uh, we see it. Uh, in defense of our nation, uh, we see it with uh, uh, this asymmetric war that we have going on in our culture right now, caused by yeah. the left. It, it it is. Let me ask you about this. There there was a hue and cry a- after Joe Biden hit the Houthi rebels. You know the Houthis, and and I thought, well, hold on, these guys are attacking American shipping. I mean, this harkens back. Uh, sorry to bring up the Marines again, but back to Jefferson sending the Marines over to the Middle East and. And, and all the people, and I understand why they say to say, well, America should stick to its own knitting and, you know, and, and keep our interests closer to home. I said, what do you do when they're attacking your shipping with the specified intent of trying to harm our country and other countries like ours by shutting down the ability to ship goods, goods uh, through the Red Sea? That's something you can't afford to ignore. And the Democrats get all wound up because because Trump, because Joe Biden didn't ask them first. I don't agree with him on much, but hitting the bad guys was a good idea, wasn't it? Well, yes, hitting the bad guys was a very good idea, especially if they're attacking American uh, flagged American vessels. Uh, you know, 15 percent of the global shipping comes through the Red Sea uh, around the port of Aden and, and that area. Um, you know, that that's a huge economic impact. But, you know. Uh, outside of that, you know, we have this Biden administration. Uh, they don't act properly, properly uh, in response to certain activities. They've known about this. Uh, Secretary Blinken has known about this for quite some time now, uh, yep. that, that this was going to escalate. And basically, they could have 
they could have uh, reduced any um, any uh, strike uh, probabilities by you know spearheading this many months ago. But yep. you know this is an election cycle right now. You know we got we we've got a you know the Biden wants to look powerful, but uh, what he's done actually is continuing to to weaken America and and and. Uh, you know, just waiting for things to happen instead of being proactive, uh, taking proactive measures against uh, against terrorism. Uh, you know, this is an Iranian proxy uh, that that is the the uh, the Houthi rebel or the Houthi, Houthi terrorist. I'm yes, and corrected. Uh, I'll call them terrorists. That's exactly what they no, are. And I agree. They're with not you rebels. There. Nope. Uh, so, so um, but yeah. So uh, I, I think. Uh, and, and then this dovetails directly into the four-day absence of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, you know, when when all this is uh, raising uh, or coming to kind of a head in in the in the Red Sea. I mean, I want to ask you, as a and former then, member of the U.S. military, what should Americans think when the Secretary of Defense just disappears? He just got out of the hospital today. And he disappears for the better part of two weeks, and 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 even the Commander in Chief. You know, as as lackluster as he is most days, he didn't even know it was going on. And uh, what should we read in all that? Well, we'll look at, you know, one thing soldiers have to have in their leadership is trust. Uh, trust is, is paramount to as a force multiplier and combat readiness. And when you see the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Defense, which is second in charge, just below the president of National Command Authority, and disappears and doesn't does not even uh, notify uh, by law as he should uh, uh, the president and members of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and his combatant commands and put a uh, and, and then he didn't even put Secretary Hicks in charge uh, of the full scope of the military at that point in time. So I would call that uh, flat out dereliction of duty uh, and at a minimum. At a minimum, it's dereliction of duty. I mean, he he's potentially broke a lot of uh, a lot of laws by not doing proper notification. And then, if you look at it on its face from a constituent perspective, how is the American citizen supposed to have faith and confidence in our government if if they act like uh, well, you give a very elementary answer? Well, you know, I'll do better next time. <laughs> you know, come on now, that's an elementary. Did, did that ever work answer. for you in the service? It did not, uh, you know, because if I didn't do well or, some, you know, uh, troops in my command uh, did not do well, uh, you know, and depending on the scope and severity of the infraction, uh, they could face uniform code of military justice punishment. And in this case right here, that gets back to the trust issue. Why in the world uh, uh, would a secretary of defense even – he was a former general officer. Does he think yep. that he can just disappear without having a, a proper succession of command? Uh, in place during and look, and I, you know I don't wish uh, his health condition on any anybody. No, nope. uh, and understandably that 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 is you know an important issue for him, and I get that. Uh, but you know what? Uh, when you go in for those kind of procedures, you are not awake. Uh, so there has to be, and there are there are as you well there, know with any medical procedure, even hey, outpatient. Tom, I, I got to interrupt because tell tell my audience okay, how they can find your website and help out your campaign in West Virginia in the second district. Well, I tell you what, they can go to my website. It's Joe Early, and that's spelled E A R L E Y, number four wv.com. 
And I tell you what, uh, you know, we are a grassroots campaign, and if anybody's uh, looking to help, all my information is on that website, and you can pick me up on the socials on Facebook and Twitter and Truth as well. Absolutely. That's Top Sergeant Joe Early from West Virginia. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Hear that sound? That's what was going on outside the White House in Washington, D.C. on Saturday night. And who is making all that noise? A pro-Palestinian, pro-terrorism march, and then a crowd outside the White House trying to break down the barricades. If you've ever been to the White House, you know that there's about an eight-foot uh, steel fence or wrought iron fence that surrounds the immediate grounds. And more recently, the White House has erected a no-climb barrier to try to hold crowds of activists and protesters and the like back. But what was happening at the White House? They were trying to break that fence down. And that was bad enough. Let me get into the details of this in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. You want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll or X poll, uh, poll, as we're calling it these days. Should we forbid land purchases by citizens of countries that won't let Americans buy land, like China? China does not allow foreign nationals to buy land in China, but apparently Chinese nationals can buy land in America. This has come to light just in the last couple of days. The second largest foreign landowner in the United States is a Chinese billionaire. His name is Chen Tiankao. He is founder, chairman, and CEO of a global investment firm called the Chanda Group but apparently bought a couple of a couple of hundred thousand acres in the state of Oregon about a decade ago that only came to light recently, even though all foreign ownership of land in the United States is supposed to be registered with the government. He has extensive ties, Chen does, has extensive ties to the Chinese government. He has membership in the Chinese Communist Party. He has executive roles in CCP organizations. And he owns a couple of hundred thousand acres in the United States. And he is, in fact, the second largest foreign landowner in all of the United States. Now, how did we not know about this when it's supposed to be registered? And I'll tell you, I get a lot of emails from people, uh, including folks who, like me, would say, well, then why don't we just make it impossible for people to be, be able to buy land right now? In large part, large measure, foreign nationals have as much right to own land in the United States as any others do. And I wrote back to one and I said, listen, get a member of Congress to introduce a bill to make foreign ownership of land in the United States illegal and say, if you want to lease land in the United States, you're perfectly welcome to do that. 
but we don't want you owning land in the United States. It is too much of a threat to this country. But uh, so far, I haven't seen anybody in Congress move in that direction. But let me go back to the protest, and then I'll get to some of your phone calls and your emails. What is being described by the media charitably as a pro-Palestinian protest, in other words, protesters protesting in favor of the Hamas terrorists who carried out that awful attack in Israel on October the 7th, murdering more than a 1,000 people, slaughtering innocents, including children, taking hostages and the like including the rape of some of the hostages, including burning some of the people who were then killed by these Hamas terrorists. And now protesters protesting in favor of those Hamas terrorists go outside the gates of the White House on Saturday night. They had put in a reinforced gate, a fence, outside a fence. This is from a Biden White House where the president of the United States came in and immediately his first day in office back in 2021 canceled construction of a border wall because the democrats will tell you all day long that they don't believe in walls except that they themselves live behind walls joe biden lives behind a double barricade at the white house he has walls constructed with taxpayer money around his own personal homes um, uh, you know in the case of one half a million dollars it cost to build a big wall around his beach house in delaware and he's protected by two walls and the Secret Service and the Metro D.C. police. And outside of his place, the White House, he wasn't there. He was up at T Camp David this past weekend. But they were out there trying to knock down that barricade. It's around the White House, the double one of the the outside ring of the double barricade. One of the protesters shouted, break it down. Another one shouted, you support the murdering of children. They're not happy that Joe Biden is supporting uh, Israel in its fight against Hamas. They threw bottles and other objects over the fence in the direction of the White House. And they were also shouting things at Joe Biden that I can't repeat, although I could say the uh, radio translation is let's go, Brandon, because that's what they were shouting at Joe Biden. They're not happy. So you might wonder, well, with a mass of people outside trying to break through the barricades and get to the White House, what would have happened if they got to the White House? We don't know. But I'll tell you what didn't happen outside those barricades. The Secret Service made exactly zero arrests. The Metro D.C. police made exactly zero arrests. And I'll quote Metro Police Department Chief Pamela Smith, who oversees the Washington, D.C. police, said, uh, we don't like the protest activity, but, quote, the right to peacefully protest is one of the cornerstones of our democracy, and the Metro Police Department has long supported those who visit our city to demonstrate safely. However, violence, destructive behavior, and criminal activities are not tolerated. I would beg to differ with Chief Smith, because if you say they're not tolerated, how many people did the Metro D.C. police arrest for trying to break through the barricades and throwing objects at the White House and threatening the White House with the F. Joe Biden chant? And the answer is none. Well, if you allow people to engage in that kind of behavior, you know what would have got them arrested? If those people had shown up wearing MAGA hats, except it wasn't the MAGA hat crowd that was trying to break down the fence. It was the pro-Hamas terrorism crowd that was trying to break down the fence. But when you when you want to say we're not going to tolerate destructive behavior and then a mob tries to break down one of the fences surrounding the White House 
and and shouting threats at Joe Biden. And you say, but we're not going to arrest any of them. What is that if it's not tolerating that kind of behavior? Second uh, example, and that came from just this morning. Fire trucks and ambulances swarmed the White House this morning. In this case, they said the White House was on fire. It was not on fire. And President Biden was not there. He was at Camp David. But the call came about 7 o'clock this morning in Washington, D.C. time, and it was determined by the District of Columbia Fire and Emergency Medical Services and the Secret Service that it was a false alarm. It wasn't true. But they got fire trucks and ambulances to dispatch and roll up on the White House because of a swatting attack. And I don't think you can view this as anything but an attack. Now, do I like the policies of Joe Biden? No. Do I want an American president to be physically attacked or have mobs outside the White House? Except one thing I know for sure. When conservatives protest anything, when conservatives do anything, the full extent of the law will be deployed to go after those people. When liberals like this, who are politically important to Joe Biden, do it, not much of anything is going to happen. And today and this weekend is proof positive of that. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And I'm very, very concerned that the Republicans may have actually sold out, uh, sold us out when it comes to the border and and whether or not we're ever going to get enforcement of America's southern border. Uh, The budget and the money is one of the few ways the people's representatives have of controlling that whole process. But to check and make sure that I'm not going too far with that. I thought we'd talk to our friend Ira Melman, who's uh, at the Foundation for American Immigration Reform, otherwise known as FAIR. Hey, Ira, welcome back. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. So t- uh, good afternoon to you. But tell me this. Uh, did the Republicans sell us out and say, OK, we're, we're not going to, to take any uh, really definitive action on the budget that would have had an effect on the uh, Biden administration's open borders policy? Well, we're not quite there yet. But, you know, it does kind of remind me of uh, Abba Ibn's famous quip about the Arabs. that They never miss an opportunity. <laughs> miss an opportunity. Miss an opportunity. <laughs> and, 
you know, I think we could say the same about the Republicans. They seem to be intent on squandering this golden opportunity to actually get something done at the border that would make a significant difference. You, um, you know, I guess what you're referring to is the negotiations taking place in the Senate right now. Right. Where, you know, it seems that they're going to settle for half measures, maybe even quarter measures, when they have all the leverage they need right now to really hold this administration accountable, to force them to actually do what the law says they need to do. Uh, but instead, you know, you have at least uh, what is leaking out because all this is taking place behind closed doors. There's nothing that anybody's seen on paper yet. Uh, but it seems that they're willing to accept up to 5,000 people coming across that border every day uh, before it triggers some kind of mandatory uh, return of people back across that border. 5,000 a day is not acceptable to the American people. Nope. Uh, you know, it may be less than the 12,000 that we've had over the past a day for the past few months, but it's still not acceptable. Uh, and the president is running for re-election. He is underwater on immigration policy. He has no public support. Uh, this should be a no-brainer. It is good for the country. It is good politically. And yet, you know, there's talk about this. There is a bulwark, however, in the House. Uh, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, has kind of said the right things. He said that they're not going to go for it. Uh, but again, you know, we have to see what happens once there's something on paper and once there's something in front of the House. Well, and just to put this in context, and Ira, as you know, as always, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But when Ira, uh, when uh, when uh, Jay Johnson, <laughs> the guy who is sorry, when, when Jay Johnson <laughs> was in charge of Homeland Security for Obama, he was asked, well, you know, when, when is it a good day or bad day? And he said, any number past 1,000 per day is a crisis. And now Republicans are going to sign off on 5,000 illegal aliens a day, unvetted, coming into the United States, it, just as a context. So, in other words, the Republicans, uh, when I said sell out, the Republicans are willing to say that five times what Democrat Jay Johnson would have considered what he worked for a Democrat. So he's you know, he was he was on the same page as Obama, who was nothing to write home about when it came to illegal aliens either. But if Jay Johnson thought it was a crisis at a thousand a day and the Republicans say, hey, five thousand a day, we can settle for that. That's a sellout as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you, you got it. Absolutely right. That's what Jay Johnson said. And yes, it is a sellout. Uh, and there is no reason for it. They could do a lot better. Uh, you know, they could do a lot better for the country. And as I said, this is an issue where the American public is behind efforts to close that border down. There is no public support for what is going on. I mean, you look at what's happening in New York City, uh, in some of these other big metropolitan areas. You, it's overwhelming. Local officials, uh, schools are being forced to evacuate so they can move uh, migrants in there. Uh, it simply makes no sense. This is their opportunity. The House passed H.R. 2 last May. Uh, it's been sitting in the Senate going nowhere because Chuck Schumer refuses to move it. This is their opportunity to leverage uh, that bill into the foreign aid bill. Uh, the president wants, I think it's $106 billion uh, foreign aid package to be approved by Congress. He's going to have to accept, or he should have to accept, real significant changes at the border. He asked for more of what he called border security money in that bill. But if you read what he asked for, it was really to process and release people more quickly, not to enforce yeah. the border. 
He, he uh, wanted for what he, fourteen billion for the border patrol, so they could pr- provide what a, a walking sidewalk or an escalator for uh, to bring people in faster, because that's all he was going to spend the money on, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, pretty much. But he opened the door. He said, "Let's include uh, that in this bill." Fine, but let's actually include real enforcement at the border, not just this fake enforcement that moves people into the country more quickly, but actually stop it. So the Republicans, the door is wide open. They just need to walk through at this point. Okay, so so here's the other thing. And Ira, I'd be lying to you if I said I haven't spent a lot of time telling my audience about what's going on in New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and D.C. But I always tell them it's because it's the most visible place it's happening. But Ira, if I do the math, if they say it's something like seven and a half to eight million uh, encounters by CBP at the border, and most of them released, you know, where they show up in court in a few years notice, and then another 1.5 to 1.7 million gotaways where they spotted them, but they never actually encountered them directly. So you're talking nine to 10 million illegal aliens. If a couple of hundred thousand of them are in New York and a couple of hundred thousand in Chicago and a hundred thousand in Philly and another hundred thousand in DC, that doesn't even account for 10% of that number. That means the rest are going to other uh, cities and states around America, except we're not seeing them in big enough groups like we do in New York City to be able to point at it and say, that's what's happening there. But it has to, these people are landing somewhere. They're not landing all in Texas and Georgia and Florida. They're going to the rest of the country, and that's going to have a consequence, too, just on a smaller scale than New York. Am I wrong? It, it, it already is having an impact. You know, and also, New York is the center of the media world, so obviously it attracts attention there. But, you know, you read places like Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, they are dealing with it. There's some town in Maine where, where they're dealing with this. It is all over the United States. And don't forget, they don't have the resources that big cities like New York have. Uh, so, you know, 150,000 people has a big impact on New York, uh, but it's a city of 8 million people. If you take a few thousand and move them into some small town, it's going to have the same or an even greater impact because they simply don't have the capacity. So it is affecting every corner of this country. Uh, and that's why public opinion has turned so dramatically against it, because it is affecting the lives of virtually everybody in this country, no matter where they live. Except that one of the, the, the thing I'm having a tough time with, don't disagree with anything you just said, but when you have a couple of thousand illegal aliens and their kids show up in a town, and if, it's, if it happens to be in one of the sanctuary states or sanctuary cities, those authorities are not going to tell you, by the way, our schools are crowded because they're filling up with the children of illegal aliens who, because of the Supreme Court, have a right to go to school. But it's putting it's having an impact, an effect on all the other legitimate kids who are going to school there. And it's going to have an effect on social services and welfare and, and police services and medical services and hospitals and everything else, except it's harder to see. It's harder <coughs> for somebody like FAIR or somebody like me had a little frog in my throat uh, to catch up with and point to it and say, the reason your hospital is going broke is the emergency room is flooded with the illegals. Yeah, but people who turn up in the emergency room needing care, uh, they notice the fact that they're not getting the care that they deserve because the hospital is overwhelmed by all these other people. Uh, the school system is exactly the same. You know, if your kid is sitting in a classroom where suddenly half the kids in the class don't speak English, and nobody's learning anything, uh, that affects you, it affects your child, it affects your child's future. Uh, and this is on top of, you know, the year that they missed due to COVID. 
And then you've got Republicans who are willing to sell us out. That's Ira Melman. He's at the Foundation for American Immigration Reform, known as FAIR. Ira, thank you so much. In a moment, we'll get back to your phone calls and emails. Glad to take them at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. When you take a walk around your neighborhood, wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do, it doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver, the government is the car, and we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I confess to having a dog in the fight on this next subject, and that is state gun laws in the in this case california in particular because california keeps passing gun laws and then they get shot down in the courts and so they just pass some more so i thought maybe sam paredes could uh, help us sort this one out spokesperson for gun owners of america and their sister organization gun owners foundation he serves as executive director of gun owners of california which has got to be kind of a tough chore most days of the week isn't it sam (laughs) Lars, uh, first of all, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Um, you're always a beacon of light and wisdom and knowledge and all of that good stuff that we need more of in America. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing to, uh, to try to uh, stay on top of truth, justice, and, and, and righteousness out here in California. The legislature just it always seems a way to flip the middle finger to the Supreme Court of the United States and to tear up the Constitution and do bad things on it as they scatter it down the down the road. So yeah, it's it's a challenge, man. But, but what uh, are they? Here to fight. What do you suppose goes through their heads, Sam, when they pass a law and then it goes to the Ninth Circus Court, which often will say, uh, actually, they've been they've given us some good decisions and some bad decisions, but they're mm-hmm. inevitably appealed, and then for the most part, they get shot down at the U.S. Supreme Court, and and the California lawmakers just say, well, let's pass some more. And would you mind giving my audience a couple of examples of the most outrageous ones? Wow, sure. Um, so. Golly, where to start on our rages? I mean, uh, well, let, let's do public places because flag. because public places <laughs> seems like a very uh, and it's a significant issue because a lot of states are trying to pass laws saying you can't carry a gun in a, in most public places. And those of us who do carry, and I do, uh, we go to public places all the time. And we think, well, that's right. where, you know, gun-free zones created by bans on carrying in public places, those make some of the most dangerous places in America. Most mass shootings happen in, in government-created um, gun-free zones. So the Supreme Court said that, that you that the only real sensitive places that, the, that can be designated are polling places, uh, courthouses, um, and, and the, uh, the, the, the government buildings where there is a significant police force there to protect the people. Other than that, you can't declare those places sensitive. They're not. Just because the general public goes to someplace, you cannot declare that a sensitive place. And just as Thomas said, you cannot declare the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place. So what does California do? California declares virtually the entire state of California a sensitive place. 
then they get tricky dick and they say, well, we're only, we, we really mean only zoos and, and sports arenas and libraries and restaurants and gas stations and grocery stores and banks and schools and, and, you know, all private businesses and even private property, unless you have the express permission of the, of the owners, we're going to declare all of those uh, sensitive places. So we, we challenged them in court in May versus Bonta, um, in which case we've, we've won an injunction on it that will not allow that creation of sensitive places in California to go into effect, which would have made concealed carry weapons permits superfluous and useless in the state. And actually kind of dangerous for the people who use them. I mean, I have carry permits for the states that I usually go to. I don't have one for Mm -hmm. California. I talked to a sheriff a number of years ago in uh, Butte County about getting one. He said, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, come down anytime and you can get it. And then a couple of years later, I was visiting the town of Chico or Paradise. I was visiting Mm -hmm. Paradise back before it burned. Mm -hmm. And I said, "I, I still want to get that carry permit. And he says, I can't give you one now. He says you have to be a resident of the state of California. So they already have tough limits on all of this stuff. But do they understand that I think it's Dr. John Lott who points out that something like uh, like 6% of mass shootings happen in places that are that are not gun-free zones. The other 94% happen in gun-free zones. So making more gun-free zones makes more places where mass shootings can happen. That is, is that the point of what the Democrats and the liberals are pushing for in California? Absolutely, that is what they are doing. They know full well what the facts are. They lie about the facts, and they continue to push these creations of, of these gun-free zones, uh, sensitive places, slash, uh, knowing full well that that is where these tragedies are going to uh, occur so that they, at that point, can use those tragedies to further their agenda of disarming all of the public. They seem to think, deep down inside, that there is a, a day coming when no one will have guns in America and, and, and we will live in, in nirvana, in paradise. Uh, but, but Lars, you and I know that's never going to happen, that as long as there are criminals, they will be able to arm themselves with whatever they need to commit their crimes. And unless law-abiding citizens are, are allowed to exercise a God-given right uh, to protect themselves, then uh, they're going to be victims. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the law-abiding, they know that they are their own first line of defense. And they, the, only, the only way to do that is with a gun. So, you know, this, Sam, this nirvana they keep imagining, because a lot of these people have been at it for a long time. And if you go back 20, 30 years ago, uh, 200 million guns were privately owned in America. Now it's more like four, 450 million uh, privately owned guns. If you go back 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years, not every state had a concealed carry law. Now every state has a concealed carry law. You know, when you went back a few years, uh, you had uh, most states did not have constitutional carry. Now a majority of states have constitutional carry. Do these people realize in the California legislature <laughs> that they're running against the tide uh, in, in almost every way you can measure it? Um, I think they realize it, and, and, and I think that is why they are going through their death throes by throwing up every imaginable gun control law that they can come up with uh, to cram it through the legislative process, uh, to, to, to continue to have a little bit of a vocal platform on this issue for a little bit longer. But they know 
because I go to the legislature every opportunity I get, and I say, this law will be declared unconstitutional, mark my words. I did that last week. They know that to be the fact, and say that still they continue. So that leads us to believe the, the, the obvious. They, they, they want to disarm America, period. And they're going to do everything they possibly can. And now that they're losing, they're running scared because it means that they are not going to have the control that they want to have. I'm talking to Sam Paredes, who's a spokesman for Gun Owners of America. You know, Sam, what I'd love to see Californians do, because when you go to the I've watched from a distance. California may may have crazy people that it sends to Congress and and everywhere else and to Sacramento. But when it comes to initiatives, they tend to vote more conservatively uh, than than you might have thought. Wouldn't it be interesting if you put a ballot measure on and said any change in laws relating to firearms must be put to a vote of the people? You know, go for that piece of it and then just tell the legislature, go ahead, pass that, and it's going to get voted on by the people or it cannot take effect. Do you think something like that is possible? It is possible. It is possible. Something like that, an initiative in the state of California, factually, cost. Twelve to fifteen million dollars to run. Now we have to make the decision: Do we want to spend those twelve to fifty million dollars in the court in order to achieve the victories that we were achieving to restore and then protect the Second Amendment, or do we want to uh, dedicate them to the to the electoral process? I don't think that's something we can do simultaneously. I think we we focus on the court to gain the victories, then we 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 move forward with novel ideas like that to hold the politicians' feet to the fire. That's what I'd like to see happen. Sam Paredes is spokesman for Gun Owners of America. Sam, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. If you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first. Check out our Instagram feed. We're also on every kind of social media you can imagine. And you're listening to... Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. When it comes to MLK Day, I like to remind Americans that Martin Luther King, uh, whether I agreed with him on everything, and there isn't a politician out there where I agree with them on everything, but MLK was a civil rights activist in the day. And he was also a great conservative. And I thought I'd remind you of a few of those things because I think they're significant to remember because to a large extent, the left in America, the the Democrats and the progressives, they all like to claim anybody who's a person of color that they sort of own those people lock, stock and barrel. I think it harkens back to the day when the Democrat Party was uh, the entire membership of the Klan. uh, And when the entire Democrat Party supported the idea of slavery, They've never really left that behind. There are people who seem to think that, oh, no, no, they flip sides and now the Republicans are the crazy racists. No, I think I'd remind you that the current occupant of the White House was actually accused of being an unabashed racist by none other than his current vice president, and that would be Kamala Harris. So the Democrat Party has never left its racist history behind. But MLK, 
I would argue that on paper, while he was not registered as a Republican, he was not registered as a Democrat, and he made quite a big deal of reminding people of that fact, he tended to vote conservative because he was himself conservative. Because think about this. Well, I'll get into the details of that in a moment. First, let me invite you to the best conversation in talk journalism. It's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, even on a subject like this, I'd put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our X poll, the poll on X, which replaced the poll on Twitter. Uh, Here's the question for today. Should we forbid land purchases by citizens of other countries that will not let Americans buy land as China? does not allow foreign nationals to buy land, but Chinese nationals, even those who are high-ranking members of the Communist Party, are allowed to buy land in the United States. And the current example, apparently he's owned the land for about a decade, but his name is Shen Qingkuo, and he is the second largest foreign landowner in the United States. He also happens to be a billionaire from China. And he bought about 200,000 acres of land, mostly forest land and other land in the state of Oregon about a decade ago. That is supposed to be something that is registered with the government as foreign ownership of land within the United States. It was not. It came to light just recently. I found out about this past weekend that he owns 200,000 acres of land and is the second largest foreign landowner in America. 200,000 acres. He is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. He holds ranking positions within the Chinese Communist Party, and he is still a foreign citizen, although he has quite a few ties in the United States, including properties that he owns in Manhattan and in Los Angeles and places like that. But he has extensive ties to the Chinese government, according to the Daily Caller News Foundation, CCP membership, and executive roles in Chinese Communist Party-affiliated organizations. So, uh, but that's our Twitter poll or X poll today. But about Martin Luther King, on paper at least, you would expect that Martin Luther King could not be anything but a conservative. Consider this, a man of the cloth who believed in his Christian faith. Uh, and while I know that there are lots of people who want to remind you of things they didn't like about MLK, let me remind you of a couple of things. Man of the cloth, pro-family, pro-life, owned guns, and actually tried to get a carry permit back in the day. He was refused that because of his skin color, but he owned several guns, and he used them to protect himself and his family. He was actually finally uh, assassinated by somebody who hated him, but there was an assassination attempt on Martin Luther King that I'd never realized until I did some research before this MLK Day, and uh, a man stabbed him in the chest. Uh, he was sitting at a at an event uh, the man walked up, inquired whether or not he was MLK uh, or Martin Luther King at the time, and uh, he said he was. And the man stabbed him in the chest with a knife. His father, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., was also uh, the uh, the victim or the, the subject of an attempted assassination. But a pro-life guy, a man of God, he was assassinated, as you might recall, in 1968 when he was 39 years of age. A couple of other details that I'd never realized about MLK. He graduated from high school at the age of 15, went off to college and finished college when he was 19, and then he went to the seminary. And one little detail from his time in college, he got a C in public speaking. He was training to be a minister, so you have to know how to speak in public, but he got a C in the class uh, because they didn't think he was a very good public speaker, even though today 
you know that he has the reputation of being a, a, a famous orator and a famous man for especially the I Have a Dream speech that he gave uh, from the Lincoln Memorial on the uh, Washington, D.C. Capitol grounds. Um, one other detail I'd never realized, um, Julia Roberts, the actress, he actually he paid for uh, the hospital bills of Julia Roberts' mom and dad. Because when Julia Roberts was born uh, in Smyrna, Georgia, for whatever reason, uh, Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. decided to pay the bills for their friends, Walter and Betty. And uh, I would ask you today to ask yourself what Martin Luther King Jr. would have said about today's diversity. Because diversity has taken on some perversity these days. Uh, we found out over the weekend the Federal Aviation Administration has now announced that it is going to be practicing a really extreme version of diversity. The FAA, of course, is the federal agency that oversees. It's part of the Department of Transportation, but it oversees all aviation in the United States, including general aviation, private planes and that sort of thing, but also commercial aviation as well. The FAA has now announced that it is adhering to the ideas of diversity and inclusion to such an extent that they're looking for people who will work at the FAA who are people who suffer from, quote, severe intellectual disability, psychiatric disability, and other kinds of disabilities. They say they will actively recruit, hire, promote, retain, develop, and advance people with those kinds of disabilities, including severe intellectual disability which makes you wonder, in a federal agency, I, I think it, it goes without saying that you'd want to see federal agencies employ people from all spectrums of life. But hiring people with severe intellectual disability to work within the FAA, it just raises more questions than I think it answers. Glad to be with you and always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. And our poll on X today, should we forbid land purchases by citizens who come from countries, live in the United States, and are not U.S. citizens, are not here to become citizens as green card holders, but they've chosen to be foreign nationals, should we allow those people to buy large chunks of land in the United States when they come from countries and are still citizens of countries that won't allow Americans to own land at all? My answer to that would be no. You can answer any way you like. You'll find the X poll at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Everyone has a community to lean on. 